So welcome to Behind the Stethoscope. Uh, this is a podcast that's a chance for our local physicians from Royal Columbian Hospital, Eagle Ridge, and all the community doctors in between to connect. Each show, you have an opportunity to get to know someone from our community beyond their day jobs. Our doctors come from varied backgrounds and specialties and experiences, and they are here today to share their stories of who they are behind the stethoscope. Today, we are going to meet uh, Sawyer Hugh Gitpenner, who is one of our endocrinologists here at Royal Columbian Hospital, and we're going to explore issues around pregnancy and fertility that many of us face in our lives and careers. So welcome, Sawyer, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I was just going to start, Sawyer, with just explaining why I brought you into the podcast and what originally prompted this. So I follow Sawyer on Instagram because we've known each other for a few years. I was actually, well, I wasn't your attending, but I guess you're a resident under our CTU program and then transferred into internal medicine from obstetrics originally. Yeah, about 10 Uh, years ago. Oh my gosh, 10 years ago is a long time. And then did your internal medicine training, endocrinology, and then came back to us at the Columbian, which we were very happy about. Interestingly, Sawyer does have an expertise in reproductive issues within endocrinology and has done some extra training with that. But the reason I actually wanted you to come today and speak to us was uh, on Instagram, you had a birth announcement post. And in the birth announcement post, uh, you were very honest about your trials and tribulations and the struggles that you and Derek faced um, with getting pregnant. And as the department head, I know that a lot of our colleagues, uh, friends have had troubles with uh, getting pregnant, uh, fertility issues, and it has caused a lot of them a fair amount of stress, which is understandable. And I wondered because you were so brave to post that on Instagram for the everyone to see and looking at the amount of support that you got, the responses and how everyone responded so positively to it. I thought if you were willing to come and speak about your journey and your experiences, that might help our listeners who some of them might be facing the same issues. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I think just starting with the post, I felt it was really important to be honest at what we had gone through, having been through infertility and seeing so many pregnancy posts on social media. I know how difficult they can be to see when you're actively trying to get pregnant and having difficult time with that. Um, And I didn't want it to look like this was just something that was really easy. Not that that's wrong, obviously, and people who do go through infertility and don't choose to share it, that is completely okay as well. But I felt it was really important for myself, and I have seen so many patients who have gone through it, and I also have a lot of personal friends that are going through infertility that I I wanted to be open and honest. I think infertility affects so many people. I think the statistics show one in six to one in eight couples will suffer some form of infertility in their um, pregnancy journey and I don't think it's talked about enough it seems to be this kind of taboo subject that people are Mm -hmm. scared to talk about and I don't quite know why I think it's important to kind of open up those lines Uh, another reason in that post was you know if people were going through something and they didn't feel they had someone to talk to I wanted them to know that I am a listening ear if they want and I actually was reached you know a couple people did reach out to me so that felt really good as well well that's awesome I mean even if we can break that down like you know, I became more mindful of the issue of a birth announcement just because having colleagues who have come to me in confidence and said they've been having struggles, you know, I've been over the years, you know, used to say to people, oh, when are you gonna have kids or things like that? And I've just realized that you have to be very careful about that sort of stuff, you know, asking people when they're gonna have children, they might be trying, you know, do you post a birth announcement? Obviously, you want people to know, but I'm sure you were especially mindful of the impact of that. And how those birth announcements that you were seeing on Instagram made you feel, so. 
Yeah, and I think the what you said about asking people if they're going to have kids or when they're going to have kids, and also going through this journey, which I'm well, happy to talk about, but we've been with since about the beginning of 2018, so about two years, being asked by people, are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? You know, you're getting above 30, you should start to think about having kids. And if they just knew what I was going through, maybe they wouldn't be asking those questions. So I think mm-hmm. that it's um, really made me more sensitive as well, just like you said, in terms of how you ask those questions, or should you, should you even ask those questions I don't think we need to necessarily ask them and mm-hmm. you can probably speak to this but I feel like all my friends who have kids they will bring their kids up in conversation you will find out if someone has kids you probably don't need to necessarily ask if they have kids or mm-hmm. when they're gonna have kids being through that experience like would you think that like because some of this is you know our listeners will listen and and I'm thinking you know if they can learn some things mm-hmm. from this and I would say probably people don't want to be asked if they're gonna have children, right? Yeah. Like if they want to share that information, they'd probably come out with it. But like, it seems to be, I think it, in the old days, it seemed to be like, you know, parents and relatives and friends, they would all ask and try it, you know, and, and it seems like that's maybe not the best thing to do in, in this day and age. Yeah, I would completely agree. I think that someone will volunteer that information if they want to. Uh, I don't think we should be asking people when they're going to have kids. And along the same line, maybe, you know, oh, well, you need to find a partner or why aren't you with someone or when are you going to mm-hmm. get married or, you know, you yeah. just never know what someone's going through. And again, people will volunteer what, what they want out of their personal life. Mm-hmm. Same with what you're saying about other people's posts. I think people have, um, should post whatever they want and, and people have the right to be excited about being pregnant. You know, if someone gets pregnant and they've had no issues getting pregnant, they should sh- still be able to share that. But I think just having that, um, awareness that it might not be the easiest thing for everybody to see mm-hmm. is important. Yeah. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, you know, about the journey and how it started and, you know, because I think that'll prompt more questions, but it also give people a sense of what you had to go through. Yeah, definitely. So I think everyone's journey is so different and I do think mine is different than a lot of people who end up going through IVF. Um, but back in 2018, I was in my last year of my fellowship in endocrinology and, uh, you know, I had regular cycles, um, like many women, and I was 29 at the time. And then my cycles started to become quite irregular. They were shortening, and then I started to miss them. Uh, being an endocrinologist and having an interest in this area, I was I kind of chalked it up to stress because it was my last year of my fellowship. I was working on getting a job after, and we had our licensing exam that year. Mm. Um, and stress can be a common reason that your cycles become irregular. So I just kind of chalked it up to that and kind of ignored it. Uh, And then I started to get symptoms that are consistent with someone going through menopause. So I got mood changes and hot flushes and things that I saw my mom go through when she was 50. But again, I think as a lot of physicians, we kind of ignore our own (laughs) symptoms. And uh, we would, you know, obviously, if we had a patient come, we would investigate further. But to myself, I just kind of ignored it. And again, just stress, just stress. Uh, And then it was actually one of my uh, attending doctors who I was on rotation with, who's also an endocrinologist, who during clinic after said, you know, I'm not trying to be nosy, but I note that you were sweating through (laughs) through us reviewing a patient. Um, Are your cycles regular? And I was like, you know what, they're actually not and I should go get some blood work done. So I went to see my family doctor and I got blood work done, uh, including a hormone level that we check for Kind of menopause, and uh, I saw my results myself before I followed up with my family doctor, and they were in they were very elevated in a range that is kind of in that early menopause stage. Someone who in their late 40s or early 50s might have a hormone level of this. So uh, I 
really diagnosed myself initially before I saw my doctor with a condition. It's called POI or primary ovarian insufficiency. It's also known as premature menopause or because I was still having some cycles, some people would call it kind of decreased ovarian reserve, but has lots of mm-hmm. lots of terms. And um, because it's an area of interest in mine, I, I kind of knew quite a bit about it. And there's lots of risks that come along with it, including risk of osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, uh, early like risk of increased um, dementia. But the biggest thing for me was the fertility. I knew that my my chances of getting pregnant on my own were extremely minimal based on this level. Uh, so it was, uh, it was really devastating. I, yeah. I have to say when I found out it was just, yeah, I was very, very broken. Um, you know, the emotions, there's the side that goes, okay, I'm a physician. I know a lot about this. Here's the medical sa- side. But you really, all of that went out the window. I just felt like I'm not a woman. You know, mm-hmm. the one thing my body's supposed to be able to do, I'm not able to do. You know, am I going to be able to have kids? I felt like probably not going to be able to have my own with my own eggs. And I really just felt like a failure. And I know objectively that that's not fair, but that's how I felt in mm-hmm. that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I... Uh, or maybe we yeah, can pause of there. course. Yeah. I just had a few questions. I mean, some relate to that, but just jumping off that, it's almost like you're, you go through grief and rage and that whole, you know, set of emotions. Definitely. Why, why me? Yeah. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Anger, frustration. It's my fault, even though, you know, there was nothing I could have done. Uh, But definitely, it's definitely a grief process and, uh, and it's difficult to, I felt it difficult to reach out to people because I felt like as a physician, in this area where I know the medical standpoint, you know, I, I didn't feel like I, sh- I shouldn't be having these emotions. Why am I having these emotions? Mm, you should be rational about it. I should be rational yeah. about it. Yeah. But I was yeah. not. <laughs> no, but I mean, we're human beings, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that sometimes I've noticed this scenario where it's a double-edged sword being a physician, right? Definitely. Because you, in some ways, it's, it's almost helpful to be a bit more ignorant about it because once you had the diagnosis you knew all the implications of this right away and you know all the research all the information and probably also kind of jumped to the worst outcomes at the end of the day yeah that's that's definitely right yeah so who so i mean you obviously had some support you could go to some people then for yeah so i think you know i am very lucky to have a partner i think a lot of people going through infertility or who maybe get diagnosed with something that is going to affect their fertility, don't have a partner Mm -hmm. in their life. So I do feel so, so lucky that I have a partner. And when we talk about kind of the IVF, I'm so lucky that he was there to go through that with me. Um, So obviously Derek, my partner, was there emotionally. And and a lot of my friends. I did talk to a lot of my friends who are in medicine and not in medicine. And I think that was helpful to talk about it. But also a lot of comments were made that were maybe not as helpful. So when we talk Mm. about asking people around if they have kids or are they going to have kids, there's other comments, someone who you know is going through infertility that maybe you shouldn't say, you know, I had people say to me, well, you can adopt, right? Mm. Which, yes, an adoption is wonderful and I, I think that's an amazing option, but it's just not the right thing to say in that yeah. moment. Um, these are all these people trying to find solutions for exactly, your problem, Exactly, yeah, they're, right? they're well-meaning. You could do this, you could do that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Or it will happen when it's meant to happen or, Oof. you know, if you just relax or think positively. And, you know, most of these people maybe don't understand the physiology of yes. the condition I was going through, but it was in some ways I felt like I maybe talked to too many people because there was a lot of comments that were in fact not helpful and, mm-hmm. and made me angrier. Yes. Yes. I can see that in that context. Like, I guess if you didn't have people to go to talk to, did you ever contemplate like counseling and things like that? You know, they have physician health lines and stuff because i'm just trying to think if you had a colleague if you didn't have partners or friends or people that were going through it 
what would we tell people, you know, to access? Definitely. So I did think about it. And mm. in fact, I think I probably should have gone then. It probably would have been very helpful. And counseling's wonderful. And growing up, when my parents got divorced, I went through, you know, to counseling. Or my mother passed away when I was young, I went to counseling. Definitely found it very helpful. But mm. in that moment, I, I think yeah. I didn't. I didn't. And for many reasons, probably just because I was trying to balance finishing my fellowship and putting my career, you know, first and being like, well, I'm so busy with this. I don't have time for that, which in fact, that would have helped the other way. Right. And I did feel like I had support, but I do think counseling and having someone objective can be extremely helpful. Yeah. Um, and but somewhat I, removed from things exactly, that doesn't yeah. have any vested interests. Exactly. Yeah. So there is the physician um, help services. You can also get a counselor separately. Yeah. And when we talk about the fertility stuff, when I saw the fertility doctor, the fertility clinics do have counselors that specialize in infertility. And so those are amazing resources as well. Mm. But I, I did not access them through my journey. And before we get to the infertility treatments, I was just thinking of a couple things already in your story. So if someone were to have irregular, you know, like you said, you put it off, put it mm-hmm. off, would you recommend like they go fairly quickly to get just get some basic tests? I would done? say yes. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of women or in society, we think when periods are irregular, that can just be normal, but it really is never normal to have irregular periods unless you're going through your puberty adolescence it can be normal to be irregular for a short period of time but then they should regulate but if you're having irregular periods in your adult life it is not normal it could be due to stress but that's still not a normal thing and should be investigated Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say if you're a woman and you're not on birth control because if you're on birth control that's going to kind of mask that irregular cycles that you should seek a physician to just get basic blood tests just to make sure that there's nothing else going on and figure out why aren't your periods regular. A lot of people with this primary ovarian insufficiency don't present until they haven't had any periods for a year or more. And at that point, there's still treatment. But when we look at the fertility side of things, that fertility number is going down and down. And they could have had an opportunity to... Potentially. Potentially. Potentially, potentially, yeah. It's still very low uh, regardless, but yeah. I think it's a good lesson for us to know because I agree with you as physicians. It's not just that we put aside. We put aside sometimes because we're too busy, Mm -hmm. right? And we say, oh, I've got this. You know, you had your exam to do. You had a job to, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, okay, I maybe you know intrinsically that that needs to be dealt with. But like you put it aside, like you say. And, you know, I think one of the lessons we can learn, I mean, I remember when I had pleuritic chest pain as a resident and I'm walking through and rounding still and, you know, my fellow is telling me to go to the merge and, you know, I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. Right. Like we all know these stories of these of our colleagues who have like kidney stone or something mm-hmm. and they've just been like staying at home or chest pain. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you would have told your patient to go to the merge right away. But as a physician, you're kind of like, oh, no, it'll be fine. It'll Definitely. be OK. And yeah, we need to crazy. take care of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, the other question I had was this attending that you had obviously seemed to approach it in a very careful way, but seemed to be helpful. Right. And, you know, we often do recognize sometimes something might be wrong in our colleagues or even residents or students. And so did you feel like at the end of the day, you appreciated that? I'm so grateful that she said that. I, I think I recognized in myself that this was not, I knew it was not normal. And although I was saying it was due to stress when I started to get the hot flashes, this diagnosis did go into my head, but I think I was in denial. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, busy and focused on other things and so you needed didn't really want to know. And say, someone else saying that to me really did push me to, yeah. to go and get that blood work done. And I will yeah, forever be grateful. To yeah. Her. Yeah. I think, you know, if it's done the right way, I think someone just politely asking or just trying to, you know, that has happened in many scenarios. I've had people when I was 
struggling with certain things, you know, kind of try and just, you know, help out with that. And I've certainly, you know, looked into other people's situations. I've noticed something was off and I've tried to approach it in a way that you don't, you know, I, I think the way that this colleague seemed to put it, you know, I don't want to pry, but I just noticed this and, you know, um, seems to be a, a nice way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But demonstrating that they care and yeah. they're there to help you yeah. if you need the help. Definitely. Great. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, those things just came up and I didn't want to have to roll back at the end. So, so then you guys went on to look at your options with uh, fertility treatments. Then. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I knew based on my hormone levels that there was a low chance of uh, getting pregnant, both on our own, but also through fertility treatment. So I sought out a fertility uh, clinic and saw a fer- fertility physician. And based on my hormone levels and looking at the numbers, the statistics, I had a less than 2% chance of success with IVF. Mm. Um, oh, with IVF? With IVF, oh yeah. There is a chance of spontaneous pregnancy because with this condition, you may ovulate here and there. But again, it's extremely low. So, you know, when I heard those numbers, again, devastated and think I felt like something had been taken from me, this opportunity. I felt like I didn't even have the opportunity to try to get pregnant to even try to be infertile. It was like I was being told I was infertile before I even had the opportunity to to get the true diagnosis of trying for six months or 12 months, depending on what you're looking at. The physician I saw, you know, she said to me these numbers and, and most people with this condition if they want their own pregnancy, you end up getting a donor egg. So you get an egg from somebody else. The problem with this condition is that issue with your quantity of eggs, how many eggs you have, not so much your capacity to carry a pregnancy. Uh, But she did say we could try IVF just uh, to see if I responded because I was still having occasional cycles. Mm. Again, like I said earlier, if I had presented after no period for a year or two years, Mm. I don't think that this option would have necessarily been put on the table. So it was a lot to think about. And I talked with my partner about it. But to me, I felt this need to at least try, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the type of person that I just need to know I've done everything I possibly can to then move on to the next step. Um, So we decided to try and, and basically the fertility physician told me, let's see if you get your own cycle. And that kind of affects your own hormones. So we were able to use my own cycle along with the highest dose of the IVF medications you can use to see if we could get some eggs. So we took a couple months because I didn't have cycle for a couple months. Then I had one and I was actually in the middle of a clinic day when it came on and I felt this urgency that I had to go to the fertility clinic right then. So I talked to the attending doctor I was with and I had never worked with them before and I basically just blurted out everything we had been through and said, I have to leave right now. And she's very supportive and I went to the fertility clinic and um, actually saw a different physician who went through the numbers with me again and said, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily the right option, which mm-hmm. I understand based on this less than 2% chance and IVF is a big thing to take on and there's potential risks and it's, and it's expensive, right? So mm-hmm. I, I kind of sat there going, oh, I don't, like, I don't know what to do and call my partner and then at the end of the day, like I said earlier, I needed to try. I needed to try at least once. So um, I we went through kind of what medications I'd need to be taking. And I happened to be flying out the next day to Chicago to go to a endocrinology conference. Gosh. <laughs> and I was presenting. So again, when we talk about, you know, sometimes we put work first, I didn't feel like I couldn't go. But I also wasn't going to not do this mm-hmm. IVF cycle. So I got all my medications. I got all my needles and uh, ice packs and doctor's letters and flew out to Chicago the next day. Oh. And I uh, ended up giving my first injection in this dingy hotel room because I was still a resident. So stayed at this really cheap hotel room in downtown Chicago and did it all by myself. And you did it yourself. I did you it. self-injected. Mm-hmm. It yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, it was a very emotional day, let's to say the least. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, so then, you know, the regular kind of IVF process, it's been a little while since I went through that specific part, but it's kind of maybe 10 to 15 days. So you do injections for a while and then you go in and you get blood work and they do an ultrasound to see if you're growing eggs. So, you know, every day I was doing the injections, which they, they are easy to learn. And I think as an endocrinologist, they're actually very similar to giving insulin. So mm. it's something that I've taught people how to do. So, um, you know, I felt that was okay. But doing the first couple was, again, it was just emotional going through that process. Yeah. And then I came back from Chicago and went in for my first ultrasound and blood work. And I was growing a couple eggs. So that was fantastic. But then the process during those last kind of five to seven days before they try to get the eggs out, you go in for an ultrasound every between every one to three days. And during this time, I'm still working through right. all of this. So I would go in at 630 in the morning to be the first person in line um, to get my ultrasound so I could make it back to work by 8 a.m. So that, you know, not everybody there knew where, mm-hmm. where Sawyer, what she doing. And that first cycle, we actually got five eggs, which for someone who's 29 is a very small amount. But for someone with my hormone levels is a very high amount. Mm-hmm. And my partner and I decided to make embryos. So when a sperm and an egg join uh, as we knew we were going to be together and we wanted kids. So we ended up getting three embryos out of that cycle, which was um, honestly a huge success. And all of Mm -hmm. the uh, doctors there, when I saw them, were were surprised by how much we got. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was wonderful. And then talking with my fertility doctor, we decided we should do kind of another cycle. So often people with IVF, they'll get the embryo if if they're lucky enough to get embryos, and then they'll put them in to try and get pregnant right away. But my issue wasn't that, you know, am I going to be able to carry a pregnancy? It was I don't have very many eggs. So at that point, we were like, let's try and get Strike when the iron is hot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just try to get as many eggs as we can. So as soon as we finished that cycle, I went straight to a second IVF cycle. And uh, that one, we got got two embryos. I can't remember exactly. I I think I had three three or four eggs. So again, not a great amount, but way, way, way better than anyone would have ever predicted. So Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we had five embryos that got frozen. And we went on to a third IVF cycle. Wow. Right after that one. And that one, um, I did not respond to the medication. So I went in and I was growing some eggs, but they weren't growing very well. And they check your estrogen levels and they weren't kind of going up appropriately. And it was kind of this back and forth. I'd go in for the ultrasound. They'd say, oh, I don't know. It's not looking great, but let's give it another two days. Let's give it another two days to see mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we're putting so much into it. And I happened to have had a trip planned to Hawaii that would have been, you know, maybe four days after I would have had uh, what we call the egg retrieval like at the end of the IVF where they go in and get the eggs out. Um, but because I wasn't responding well, we kept they kept pushing it a couple more days, a couple more days. And then Derek and I had this decision of, do we cancel the trip? Do we not? Because, you know, I wasn't responding well, but we weren't going to give up. And so we almost canceled our flight. And I got a call from the clinic saying, your estrogen levels have dropped. So you were not... You're, these eggs are not going to be viable eggs. So it got canceled the day before we went. And again, even though we had success in these first two, it was just, you so know, these emotions. It's yeah. a roller coaster. I was, mm-hmm. yeah, I was very devastated. Um, so then we took a break and my fertility doctor said, we could see if you get one more of your own natural cycle, then we could maybe do one more cycle because that's when I responded the best was with that first cycle. So during that time, I was finishing up my fellowship. During all of this, like when you weren't doing the IVF, I had hot flashes, mood changes, you know, oh, everything gosh. that you're that a menopausal woman goes through and didn't go on medication because we wanted to see if I got my own cycle. And then I finished my fellowship. I was locoming uh, here at Royal Columbian Hospital. And through all of that, you know, again, these symptoms were not not great. But then I happened to get my own cycle months later, one week before my licensing exam. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So then I was like, oh my gosh, I have my licensing, my Royal College exam, but I haven't had a cycle in four months and this might be it. 
I got to try. So we tried one last cycle and uh, and I didn't respond, but I went through my Royal College and luckily passed that because that would have not been good if it was both. And the cycle ended up getting canceled because I wasn't growing eggs. So I think it just shows how, to me anyway, the how critical that initial window was that when mm-hmm. I caught it, that I had any response because then I had two after that where you had none. I had yeah. none. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm frankly amazed at like what you were going through at the time because I, I think I probably saw you on the ward when you were mm-hmm. locoming and I don't think I would have even noticed that you were under any stress whatsoever or I would have attributed to just a new staff person. I think you did seem a little bit, but I was like, oh yeah, well, anyone who locums, you know, they're just getting used to practicing. Yeah. So, I mean, you were obviously bottling a lot of that inside. I guess my my question for, for you is in retrospect, it's always hard to go back, right? But do you think taking some time off from work and just focusing on this I know some people have done that you know I've talked to them and I've had some colleagues that have just said you know I can't do all these things together you know and and I don't think there's a right answer I'm just Mm. I'm just kind of conjecturing like do you think it would have been better to take some time and just focus on that and then you know put the work aside I do uh looking back the when I went through my first IVF cycle I did change my rotations in my fellowship to something a little less stressful but I in my mind was like I can't delay finishing fellowship I can't delay you know locoming and then the extra training I did but really what is even Mm -hmm. an extra year or two years in the long you know run of things probably not not important and it was really hard and I think what you said about seeing me and not knowing uh, I do think I put on a really good face um, and mask and I think I still do my job well but the stress you know at the end of the day I would tell you I cried probably five days out of every seven days at the end of the day and I think that it's important to know that just because someone looks like they're doing well or things are going well doesn't necessarily mean that everything's perfect in their life. Um, but looking back, I do wish I took some time off going through those cycles. Yeah. Or reduce the amount of pressure from all these other definitely. sources. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And then if I think about my Royal College exam, that that's really tough. I don't know how I would answer mm. that because I think because I passed, I wouldn't have wanted to delay it. But uh, had I not, it, you know, yeah. it, the stress of going through the IVF during that time definitely affected my studying for that. Okay, and then so from there, mm-hmm. you did the, the retrieval part of things. And I guess what we can emphasize is that every person may have a different, like this approach doesn't work for everyone, right? Yes. That's what they need to understand is you need to actually go to an expert yes. and discuss your specific situation. Yes, I think that's so important. Yeah. And I, I would say that I'm probably atypical from the normal person going through infertility because most most people who present with infertility have actually been trying actively to get pregnant. You know, I got diagnosed with a condition that is going to affect my fertility. So you just went, um, so I went right. straight there, yeah. whereas most people are trying for, you know, can be anywhere, but usually it's around six months to a year. We're saying maybe there's something going on, but people are trying for 10 years or 15 mm-hmm. years. And, mm-hmm. and so usually you've been actively trying and then you would need to see a specialist and figure out why is this an issue. And th- and there's a lot more steps of people out there listening or reading about infertility or have gone through their own journeys. A lot of people, you know, go on pills to try and help them as a female ovulate or do something called IUI, which is where the male sperm is uh, concentrated and injected into the woman. And there's so many other steps necessarily before IVF. And a lot of people kind of think of IVF as the kind of final line, um, yeah. which, which it kind of is the most thing there. And I, I'm not an expert in fertility treatment at all. So not going to no, think it's there, important though important to encourage to that, people yeah. to access experts yeah. and maybe not necessarily wait too long you know i, I mean i, I don't want to go into my own personal circumstances too much because this you know i focus on your story but you know my wife and i uh want to have another child in our later years and so we talked to our 
obstetrician and you know i know a lot of them here so that was nice and they basically said you know at your age if it doesn't work after three months we're going to start you on some pills and if that doesn't work then you really have to consider you know ivf like you don't have a huge amount of time to consider those sort of things right and i I think you know just at least talking to someone and getting that perspective you don't have to do any of the things that they suggest but you know they know what they're talking about to us you know a certain degree and i I do, I do not want people to wait too long before they access help, you know, just put it off. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no harm in accessing help, right? If you're told, give it a couple more months or give it another six months, then you do that and you come back, but there's no harm in, in just exploring and making sure there's nothing. With the initial process, would you say it was the emotional roller coasters was worth worse or the actual physical? Cause you know, there's, there's needles and mm-hmm. procedures and, you know, I think people are very appropriately sometimes concerned about all the that sort of stuff. In your experience, you know, which one, you know, I've heard other people say, well, that part's not the tough part. The tough part is the, is the waiting and the expecting and the hoping and then the, you know, the ups yeah. and downs of that. Yeah, so I would agree with what you've kind of heard from other people. For me personally, the emotional part was way harder. Again, just those emotions of thinking, you know, my body's not working properly. I don't feel like I'm a real woman and, you know, I should have the choice of whether I want to have kids or not. I feel like that was being taken away. The physical part of it is not easy for sure. You're doing multiple injections a day. And and I think for a lot of people going through IVF for different reasons, they get a lot more of the physical symptoms associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because if someone, if a woman has lots of eggs, they, you know, get swelling in their belly and can get a lot of symptoms associated with that. For me, I didn't really have that risk because there wasn't very many eggs there. So I actually feel like I probably tolerated the IVF medications a lot better than mm. than some people do. But I found I found the medications and the physical part and going through the egg retrieval, I just kind of felt almost like mechanical, like this is just what I need to do. And that part I didn't find too emotional or difficult, but the emotional part of going through the fertility process and never having imagined I would be there if you had asked me two or three years ago mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. was very difficult. And the and the roller coaster of, you know, those last couple cycles of are they going to work, are they not going to work, and that back and forth was very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the next step, if you're comfortable talking about Yeah, definitely. About it. Yeah. So after my uh, licensing exam and that cycle getting canceled, I was actually moving to Toronto for six months to do extra training. So Derek and I decided to hold off on actually actively trying to get pregnant with uh with one of our frozen embryos and we kind of knew we probably weren't going to do any more IVF cycles because we've now had two that I haven't responded to the medication so chances of success of doing another one be quite low and that six-month break was actually so good Mm. uh going there again I guess focusing on my training there but I also went on to hormones like someone who is in menopause would and that really treats all the symptoms associated so I felt way better physically Mm. and I think it allowed me to kind of separate myself and actually process all these emotions because again talking about kind of that robot part of the IVF I think I was just like okay what's next what's next what do I need to do and I hadn't had a chance to just let it all soak in so it was uh I think really important to have that break uh, and then we knew when we came back we wanted to actively try if you had asked us two or three years ago when we were going to have kids uh we probably would have said still not for a couple more years from mm-hmm. where I am now but we knew that those embryos you know, we had them, but the chances of them working, we didn't know, right? So we felt we want to at least try and see if they work because if they don't work, each time you do an embryo transfer, if it doesn't work, then you have to do a whole process for the next one and the mm, next one. And right. so this could be a, you know, several year journey to know if it's going to work. And if it doesn't, then we definitely have always known we want kids. So 
what is the next step? What does mm-hmm. that look what like for options? us? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, okay, well, we might get pregnant right away, or this could be several years before we have a family. Um, so when we moved back, I actually started my own office and started here in endocrinology, which was fantastic. But during that time of starting up my own office, I was like, okay, well, we're also going to oh, try God. our embryo transfer. So at the clinic to do an embryo transfer because we had the frozen embryos. Uh, my body doesn't have the hormones to, you know, I'm not making my own hormones to make my uterus a nice home for an embryo. You take hormones with estrogen and progesterone to try and create the proper environment. So in um, in kind of June, we started the process with those medications. But then when I had follow up to see if it had kind of developed in the right way, it didn't. So we had had a date set of when we were going to try our first embryo. And about a couple of weeks before I got a call from the fertility clinic saying it's not the right environment. We need to cancel the transfer mm. and try again. And again, that time, like all the emotions of everything we had been through with all the first IVF just came flooding back. You know, I just felt I felt so hopeful and excited. And then I just felt defeated. And I remember like going to a park down in Stanley Park and just bawling my eyes out and all those emotions again of feeling like my body is not working with me and all this so even though I uh, again talking to friends people would say well what's the big deal like you didn't lose an embryo and you're gonna get to try again and um you know it's better that you that you didn't try and it didn't mm-hmm. work and I 100% agree with them but in that moment it was like I had I had figured out when my due date would be and I was thinking about where we would set up a nursery in our apartment and I just got so hopeful yeah. and then having that canceled was was really tough but again got back on my feet and then we tried again for the for the next one um, in July and we everything developed properly with the medication so then we had a transfer of our first embryo in July and we were extremely lucky to get pregnant from mm-hmm. that yeah. wow. and I actually did the embryo transfer a day before I went to a friend's wedding and I found I was pregnant the day I was a bridesmaid at my other friend's wedding the following weekend. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. That's yeah. yeah. And I guess that emotions, like, it's a different flood of emotions then, right? Um, the, the getting pregnant part? Yeah. 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 So it was, I mean, first, they say not to, you know, use your own home pregnancy test uh, mm-hmm. when you're going through IVF. And if you're someone who's doing a not a frozen cycle, it's actually extremely important because you're given a medication that you could get a false positive and then feel very. But for me, I knew that if it was pregnant, if it was positive on a home pregnancy test, I'm probably pregnant. But they say, you know, just wait for the blood test. But I just I couldn't. Um, I just needed to know. And I uh, so I had a positive test at home. Very, very faint second line. And um, and then I literally did a home pregnancy test every single day <laughs> to see yeah. because it was, it was the most wonderful feeling but also scary that's what i was gonna ask yeah. you yeah, yeah there was probably a lot of fear that yeah you, you could yes yeah, like lose. is it yeah. you know yeah is this just a what we call biochemical pregnancy so it's just positive test or is it actually am i pregnant and you know we know the chances of miscarriage in general are pretty high so mm-hmm. yeah am i gonna be able to keep this baby and what do i need to do and um and then in addition to that, um, when you're going through that, you have to continue to take hormones for the first kind of 10 weeks of the pregnancy, which includes pills, but also uh, suppository pills that you do three times a day. And so, again, that that part was difficult because it'd be in the middle of my work day and I'd be having to go do this. <laughs> and, yeah. and then I was also on injections during that time and they were injections that I couldn't give myself. So I had to teach my partner how to give those. Um, so that process was also pretty trying from a scheduling perspective and mm-hmm. starting out my practice and, yeah, and yeah. emotions of is this going to work and awaiting for that first alternative sound to see is there actually a is there actually a baby in there yeah wow and um now at this point i guess the question is how did people respond how did you feel about the responses you know you sent out the birth announcement mm-hmm. you know how how has things gone from here 
Yeah, so I, the responses have been amazing. Everyone's been extremely supportive. It's interesting getting pregnant in your first year of practice. A lot of people were like, oh, everyone gets pregnant in their first year of practice. And, mm. and I'm like, well, yes, but let me tell you what we've been through to get here. You know, it hasn't just been like, okay, I've got a job now. I'm going to get pregnant. Um, and obviously nothing wrong with getting pregnant in your first year of practice. It's wonderful. But the responses have been really supportive and wonderful. Uh, I would say that sometimes people think, okay, well, now you're pregnant doesn't really matter what you've been through or that's gone or you know thank goodness it worked but that that trauma of going through the fertility treatment and infertility it doesn't just go away Mm -hmm. Uh, one time I really noted that was I went to a prenatal uh, bar class which a bar is a type of exercise kind of like a ballet type of exercise and I walked into the class and there was a room full of pregnant women and I I treat pregnant women all the time I work in the pregnancy and diabetes clinic here and I love love working with pregnant women and I don't feel any emotion from my own journey when I'm seeing pregnant women but going into that class it was walking into this room of pregnant women and I I just got like really emotional I thought you know I don't belong here Mm. even though I was pregnant you know all these women are pregnant and even though for all I know they've been through similar journeys or you know but I I really noted that 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 trauma of what I'd been through and those emotions of seeing people pregnant or putting their announcements up didn't just disappear. Right. Now, while you were going through all this, just you were seeing patients Mm -hmm. and because of your area of expertise, presumably you were seeing patients that were struggling with the same struggles. Definitely. Do you feel that like, A, was it challenging to see patients, you know, and bring up those emotions kind of regularly while you're seeing them? Or could you separate yourself from that? And I guess the the follow-up question would be, having been through this, I presume it gives you kind of some insight and perspective, you know, maybe some more empathy, you know, for these patients that other that other people don't possess. So there's probably a good side and a bad side. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it was difficult. If anything, I just felt that I related more to mm-hmm. what people were going through and could understand not only, okay, here's the medical side, you need to go on these hormones, or you need to do this, but their emotional side. Uh, I never shared with any patients my own personal journey, but I do think I showed more empathy. Interesting seeing that some of my friends when I was going through this said, oh, well, this will make you a better doctor, which again is a comment that in the moment was not helpful mm-hmm. because I was like, well, I'd rather not have this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and But um, but I do think it has made me better at treating these conditions because of that, mm-hmm. of the kind of understanding of what the process looks like and yeah. the emotional journey. And the emotional journey is so different for everyone. I've definitely seen people with this condition. I've diagnosed them and when you tell them the risks associated and to me I'm going oh the fertility side but then they're like well I have no interest in having kids so that's not actually the part that concerns them so that's also important for me to you know recognize that it's different for everybody yeah yeah now I know when we talked about originally doing the podcast you know we were very mindful of the fact that some people are going through this journey and have not been lucky enough Um, you know I do want to recognize that first of all just to put that out there but I think both you and I felt still that it would be important to share the story because, you know, just to know that people go through this and just bring it out in the open. What would you say to the people that are still going through this? And I guess at some point, did you mentally prepare yourself for the fact that it may never work out? Or did you, or was that kind of glimmer of hope there? You know, you never kind of made that conscious choice because I know some people do have to sit down and make that conscious decision. You know, what would my life be or what is my next plan if it doesn't work out? Yeah. So I think exactly like you said, it is so important to recognize like I am really am a lucky in terms of the number. If you looked at the numbers and the fact that this worked out uh, is really lucky, but I think it's also important to be realistic with things. So I think, you know, being given that initial number of less than 2%, I was realistic that this might not work. And 
it is really important to recognize that just because you're going through infertility or you're going through IVF, there's not a 100% chance that it's going to work. So I think a year rate, it's extremely important to recognize that. And I feel very lucky. And a lot of people, I think it's important to also realize that they don't even have the opportunity to go through fertility treatment. You know, I was lucky enough to be in a position Mm -hmm. that we were able to financially financially afford it and has it delayed us buying a home things like that small things yes it has but for other people they don't even have that opportunity to even broach the subject of fertility treatment so I feel extremely lucky from that standpoint and people go through it and may do multiple multiple cycles and not have success so um, so important to recognize for me I think uh, when I was in Toronto during the six months in processing things I did process the fact that we may not have our own biological children but I don't think I ever kind of got to a point of thinking of not having a family at all and in my mind and I think everybody has their own level of what they'd be willing to do or what they wanted to do but in my mind I had kind of gone okay well if this doesn't work I would want to try an embryo like a sorry a donated egg so someone else's egg to see if that would work and if that didn't work you know are we looking at other options to have a family. Um, so I think in my mind, I was going to figure out a way to have a family no matter what, which would, is not the right answer for everybody. Mm-hmm. And maybe even with me saying that, maybe there's a chance we still would not have had a family, right? It's hard, it's hard to say. But I, I don't think I reached that point of thinking I will have no kids, but I definitely reached a point of being okay with the fact that I may not have my own biological children. Yeah. I think one of the most powerful things that you've said is sometimes like the choice being removed from you is has a dramatic impact on someone you know some people didn't even think they wanted to have kids but once that that choice to make that choice consciously is removed it's kind of it makes it challenging for them to process right but i i think if anything what you've kind of suggested is that there are options mm-hmm. right so you can kind of almost take the choice back and put it on the table at least right. and then right. make that conscious decision as opposed to feeling helpless right yeah yeah i think there there are options but they're not always things that people want to or should be hearing up front. Like I said, you know, when I initially had all this happen and some people like, well, you can adopt. And that is totally 100% true. And that was definitely on my radar. And and also, I just want to make it clear that adoption doesn't always, it's not a last resort at all. Adoption is amazing. I I think that's really an amazing first choice too to have a family. I don't want to make it like, oh, that was, you know, a a last um, resort. It's not. But in that moment, when I had always thought I would have my own biological children, it was not something that I could hear. And even my doctor saying, well, you can do a donor egg. It was just not something that I could hear in that moment. But it is true that after processing going through things, there are options. And I think there is, if it is something that is really important to you, there are ways to have families through many means. And now with your announcement, people have opened up to you. You know, I think that's fantastic. Was there kind of a support group? You said there was a counselor, but there's nothing involved with supporting. Like it would be nice. I've always felt that if you have people that can share that common journey, right? Like you've thrown it out there and said, Mm -hmm. I'd be willing to talk to people about it. You know, and I think part of this podcast is to throw it out there and say, you know, we should talk about these things, right? Whatever troubles you're having. Any thoughts of how I guess it's just being honest and open with people, right? Yeah, and, so I think yeah. for some people, again, if they don't want to talk about it, yeah. they don't need to. And it, it can it's obviously private for a lot of people, but I do think it's something that is so common. And when you do put it out there, you are so shocked at how many people have mm-hmm. are actively going through infertility, have gone through fertility treatment, have, you know, are 
in that kind of journey, um, it's just honestly so shocking how common it is and how I think it's important to talk about because I think a lot of people also don't realize that maybe they should be seeing a healthcare provider or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of support, they, the fertility clinics do have support groups uh, where they you know offer patients to come and meet. I don't know how frequent they yeah. are. I have not attended one, um, but there but there is that, and and there are a lot of online uh, forums as well for fertility kind of you know facebook groups or instagram groups um so i think there are ways to kind of be supported more anonymously if that's what what works for you yeah yeah but i think having a colleague you know i mean to me i am shocked by the number of people that i'm aware of and i'm probably not even aware of all of them but i i do become aware of some of them because they either confide in me or there's scheduling things that come up that i help them accommodate Mm -hmm. i think my sense is because we're physicians and we tend to put things off because of our career, right? That it seems to be a bigger, not a bigger, but like it, it seems to be we have residency fellowship, 13 years of training. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of us are trying to have children at a later age than some other people. So maybe mm-hmm. it's not that it's a bigger problem, or but I think a lot of other people would discover it sooner because they might be trying to have kids earlier than, you know, their mid to early 30s and then there's less time then in that scenario yeah i would agree and there was actually i was just pulling up here uh, an article was just uh published in the new england journal of medicine it said one in four the importance of comprehensive fertility benefits for the medical workforce and it's talking about the medical workforce and that you know the statistics i haven't read the whole paper it was just came out but one in four one in four we're saying one in six to one in eight couples and it looks like you know in our medical yeah. field that's potentially higher. Wow. And that's important to recognize. Yeah. Yeah. And that you're that you're not alone if you're out there not alone. struggling with this. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to share? I think the other, you know, thing just going back to the very beginning about my post and talking about social media, I think very important to just recognize again that social media, you know, is a wonderful platform, but everything on there is not always, you know, 100% of the of the story either another reason why I felt it was so important to share Um, but if we go back to the beginning of my journey that first year when we went through infertility and through our four IVF cycles during that year I got engaged I finished my fellowship I got hired here and I had multiple people after I came out talking about this tell me wow I thought that 2018 was probably one of the best years of your life but in fact it was it was one of the worst and one of the hardest for us so mm-hmm. and just going back to the fact that people may look fine they yep. may seem fine on social media their life may seem fantastic but it doesn't necessarily mean that and not that you need to be asking is anything wrong but I think just being a support person and checking in with people is is important yeah, yeah definitely well great I I think we'll wrap up here and so I want to thank you, Sawyer, for taking the time to share your very personal story. And I really do appreciate it. I think other people listening will really appreciate uh, how heartfelt it was and that you're willing to put it all out there to try and help others. I'd also like to thank Nikki Thorpe of Bronick Consulting for producing this podcast. This podcast is made possible from our local facilities engagement by the Doctors of BC. And of course, thank you to our listeners. We invite you to connect with us either on Instagram or at behindthestethoscope at yahoo.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you enjoy the show and want to see it continue, uh, it is possible to do a donation through the RCH Foundation. Um, You can go to rchfoundation.com and donate with a note saying that you want your contribution to be put to the podcast fund. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Gerald DeRosa for Behind the Sesto.